Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. LTE is back, baby, after a little hiatus. I'm your requisite imbecile, Brendan O'Mara. I do stuff over here at the newspaper. Google me, bruh. I was in Maui for about a week looking at humpback whales and trying to recharge the batteries. Ever put too much pressure on a vacation to be this kind of panacea for all your stresses and problems in this, in this crappy world? Anyway, so I come back and the coffee machine in the office is always blinking, add water, and I'm having issues with always having to be the one to add water to the machine. I bring in my cold brew concentrate that I make at home and all I want to do is add water, hot water to my cold brew. And every morning I see the stupid light flashing and I see these K-cups which drive me insane. And all I want to do is add water and I have to be the one who adds water and heeds the light on the Kerrig machine. So my vacation totally worked. Amanda Astor is here. She's rad and smart and had a piece come out uh, a couple weeks ago about optimizing carbon mitigation through forest management. So we unpack that a bit. Should be fun. Got letters you want to send in? Email them to rgletters at registerguard.com. We are under no obligation to print them. I have to be clear on the matter. But most get through if you're not a troll and prove that you speak the English language at at least a fourth grade level. Guest views can be emailed to me directly, aim for 700 or 500 words. Anything in between gets weird, man, for the page. It's just a design thing. I think that's it. Hey, if your coffee maker at work needs water, add water. Here's Amanda. Uh, So, you know, one of the reasons that I really wanted to talk about climate change and carbon this month in, in February when my piece came out is because of everything that's happening in the Oregon legislature with cap and trade. And um, it, it's just a, it's a huge topic. There's the Oregon Logging Conference this year's topic is uh, working, working forest carbon keepers. So there's just a lot of uh, carbon-related things going on. And, and with the election cycle happening, we've got all sorts of climate action and different mitigations that are coming out um, on the policy realm. And so one of the things I really wanted to do with this piece was really bring it back to science. And um, there's lots of different policy tools that we can try to research and look at to mitigate what's happening with with carbon and and, um, climate climate change. But how does science and actual management on the ground work fit into all of that? Yeah. And it would it would seem that. That um, that as you write, like to get you know, net negative carbon outputs from forest trees must be har- harvested, and I know there are probably a, a a significant subset of people who would think it, that's antithetical. They would think it's just the opposite. So maybe you can elaborate on that, on why you know what research you have found that supports that. 
Yeah, it's it gets really complicated really quickly. <laughs> yeah. So I try to let the scientists speak for um, for the research as much as I can. That's why, I, for me at least, what I do in my op eds, I think it's really important to to link scientific articles because yeah, the scientists can normally talk about things in a different way than than I can when I'm just trying to sum things up. Um, but but generally. What we talk about in in climate change and carbon is different pools of carbon. So where is carbon stored on the landscape, in the atmosphere, and elsewhere? We know that trees store carbon through photosynthesis, uh, through this energy from the sun, and and that's really fantastic. But we can't just plant trees. And that's the end of the story. We have to manage them. We have to um, cut them down and utilize them in efficient ways, um, such as uh, engineered wood products. If you've heard of uh, uh, cross-laminated timber and and different plywood and and mass timber products, Um, when we do that, we're actually going to optimize the storage. There was a recent study that just came out that talked about how we can actually have a higher density of carbon stored in urban environments if we have mass timber buildings. So if we have a big skyscraper that's built with a bunch of wood products, we can actually store carbon in that environment at a higher density than we can in the forest. So there's a um, kind of a diminishing return when you only have the the trees and, and you're not harvesting them, you're not managing them. Um, we have uh, other things happening in the environment with drought and um, insect and disease and fire. So, so your risk becomes greater the longer you leave those trees on the landscape. So there's kind of this sweet spot where we have optimal uh, sequestration of carbon into the into the trees. We can harvest those, utilize those in efficient ways in our in our um, built up world, and then replant the trees and, and and just continue that cycle. So we end up getting more carbon stored in a less risky way um, if, if we do that than if we just let the trees grow and and get old on a landscape. Is there any truth that that old growth, you know, big trees, once they're allowed to reach a certain age, that they are every bit as good at sequestering carbon, or is it, or is or is what you're what you're referring to mainly a tree that's say like fifty to sixty years or younger? Like those are the ones you have to turn over. But like, is there a threshold where once they get to a certain age, they're every bit as good at keeping it there if they're allowed to, you know, continually grow? Yeah. So there's um, one thing that I think is always important to talk about is there's the term sequestration versus storage. So Mm. sequestration is more or less the act of uh, storing carbon. So younger trees that are uh, more vigorously growing, they're really trying to establish, um, and and young could mean anywhere between zero and, say, 30 years. Um, when, When trees are in that younger age class, they're really rapidly sequestering carbon to get a foothold in the environment. As they get older, um, and in and in Oregon and the Pacific Northwest, we say our research has shown about 100 years old is when they really start to actually be net negative or net um, positive, I guess, in their their carbon um, outputs. So they actually start to produce carbon into the environment as opposed to sequestering it into themselves. Mm. And that has to do with decomposition and um, uh, just getting getting um, more 
involved with with the environment and they just they they can become less vigorous and less healthy um, as they get older and um, that's really how kind of what I mean that the older trees because they're bigger they store more carbon but they're not sequestering as much carbon um, you know annually as the younger trees would be Mm. and is that because as they get older they become more susceptible to disease and and other you know, other factors that are sort of up in, you know, up in the air. It's a thesis upon. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> they, as they get older, they become less vigorous. They are, uh, like I said, the longer that they're on the landscape, the more risk there is to be, um, to have, uh, uh, wildfires come in and, and destroy them to have insects or disease kill them to have um, wind throw events snowstorms that that break them um, a lot of times if you see or if you've ever cut down a tree <laughs> I don't know that you have but no. if you ever cut down a tree especially older trees um, a lot of times you cut into them and there's going to be some sort of a rot inside there's all sorts of different rots and um, uh, pathogens that can get inside of trees but when that's happening, it may look like a healthy tree on the outside, but the inside might be crumbling and that's decomposition and that's producing carbon into the atmosphere. And, you know, and when I was, you know, reading, reading your piece and then I read other things that come in, um, that from the more conservationist side too, you know, everyone is citing various research and it's all, you know, by, by and large credible research, but it's like, I often wonder, you know, we, if we want, if we have a certain stances, sometimes we can find the research we want to, Mm -hmm. to, to support it. And, you know, given given that, that that's kind of the case, I wonder. You know, how do you how do you break through the noise? Like, what is you know what can be deemed you know universally credible research? Mm-hmm. You know, if we're all kind of leaning on leaning on the, these papers that you know seem to you know cement one worldview or another. Yeah, I had this exact conversation with uh, a group of ladies the other night, and this whole idea that what what can you trust right whether it's yeah. um you know what 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 paper can you trust if it's coming from a big corporation can you trust that you know are the scientists you yeah, know like who's funding it yeah who and, and it's the same with research from from uh universities as well i mean who who they're getting the grants from how they're manipulating the statistics it may seem like the results section of a paper is going to be the most concrete proof and then the discussion which is usually where bias is incorporated into it um, and conclusions are are developed uh, you would you would think that the results section is going to be concrete proof but you can manipulate numbers as well depending on your knowledge of statistics so it for the layperson it can be really hard to understand what is and what isn't factual and i think the the big thing for me when i'm reading a journal article or uh, you know some type of research is to really look at the assumptions and how they did their analysis so that's going to open my eyes up to um, some of their biases potentially and and how they ended up getting the results that they had because um, you know if you have a, a paper and you're trying to look at let's just say carbon sequestration in the carbon cycle, but you leave out the harvested wood products pool. You leave out substitution. Um, so utilizing wood instead of concrete and steel, um, that's going to affect your conclusion at the end. Same with if you do a paper and you're not analyzing for replanting 
and you don't analyze reforestation after you harvest, that's gonna you're gonna come up with a completely different conclusion than if you had included those things in your analysis to begin with. Mm. Are there any other red flags to you that that stand out as like, oh, this is something that's that's not credible to to someone who's who has some sort of a requisite knowledge of this? Oh, that's tough. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess the the best advice that I can give is when you're looking at something, be critical. Look at um, don't just look at the the paper. Look at the sites that they have uh, that they have utilized in their in their resources, and then their references. Um, try to find articles that have opposing views. Look at what where they got their information because a lot of times with science, it's people working off of other people's science. So um, we might get so far down a rabbit hole that that original paper that was published had some errors. And now we're so far down, um, you know, really going back and looking at not just that one article, but looking at what they cited and, and who they looked at and what research they did to get to their conclusion, I think is really, really important. Mm. And uh, what, what other things might you want to talk about, Amanda, that we might not have uh, already talked about? <laughs> just kind of up up against our time, and I want to make sure I uh, I see you've got a big uh, big ass notepad. So. <laughs> oh, I carry one around with me everywhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> memory memory can be tough, even for us youngsters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to I'm push, I'm I'm at the age where I'm just relatively young now versus universally young. Like the, a lot of the a lot of people in our newsroom are they they are low to mid 20s and like yes that is universally young i'm at a point where i'm just i am young to a certain subset of people but no longer <laughs> universally young <laughs> um well one thing that i did kind of want to talk about and one thing that i put into the article is this idea of um how much land is really at risk out there of what we talked about of, of drought of disease of insect outbreak of um, wildfire and I really um, want to make sure that as people read the articles that I'm putting out, um, you know, there's always going to be some sort of unconscious bias that goes into things. That is reality. Everybody has unconscious bias based on what you've done um, and, and what you've experienced. But one thing um, that that's in the, this article is the um, the that 80 million acres of Forest Service land of federal land out in the United States, not just Oregon, but in the United States, is really at risk for for those um, uh, climate uh, related and non climate related risk factors in the environment. And really, what I wanted to promote when I wrote this article was that we need to be in, empowering those people that are trying to get work done on in the woods and trying to mitigate those risks and trying to optimize the benefits that we can get from the woods. Um, and, and that's not just cutting down trees, that's producing profit to be able to get watershed enhancement done, to get recreation um, enhanced on, on our federal lands. Um, I, I think that realizing that, you know, I'm not here just to cut down trees and, and that's not the only um, thing that I care about. It's it's really about getting the land treated. And, um, you know, we can't do that without a, a um, infrastructure that's in place that's that's doing well, hmm. um, a timber, timber infrastructure that's doing well out there. It, we're all really a family. We all play a part. Um, whether you're the recreationist out there 
paying a fee at a recreation site or you are, you know, a, a federal agent or you're somebody cutting down the trees. <laughs> right. Or doing surveys out there looking for owls or murelets. It's, you know, everybody has a, a role to play. Um, and it's important to understand each other's roles and respect each other's roles. Yeah. Are you are you finding that it's harder and harder to try to find find that common respect when people are so dug in on how they how they feel one way <laughs> or the other? Well, I'm a pretty big optimist. I would like to think that everybody wants to come together at a certain point. Um, you know, I come at it in in good faith whenever I'm trying to compromise or collaborate. Um, and I just hope others are, are coming from that same perspective. Nice. Well, Amanda, it's always always a pleasure to get to speak to you and, of course, and, re- and read your work. So I just I appreciate you coming back in for round two. And this is uh, just all the more exciting for me to get to talk to you more and have you in for round three in a few weeks, I hope. Thank you. Thanks for having me.